Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It seems pretty clear that we're not building uh, nearly enough homes in this country compared to what we need. The best estimate that everyone seems to be working with is what we got from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation that says if you take all the homes we're building right now, or the pace we're building at right now, we're actually going to need 3.5 million homes more than that to be built by 2030, so just six years from now, in order to maintain any level of affordability. So according to CMHC, we're off pace by about 3.5 million homes. And that's a big number. And, and that's pretty sobering. But here's an even more troubling question. What if that number is off? What if that number is actually underestimating the, the number of homes we need? So as bad as a picture as that paints, what if it's actually even worse than that? And what are the implications? Well, some new research out from uh, CIBC World Markets, uh, a report out last week, uh, suggesting that the number is actually a lot more, that it may be as many as 5 million extra units we need to build by 2030 on top of what we're already building. And as daunting as 3.5 million is, 5 million uh, seems like a mammoth task. So what does that leave us if we're not able to do so? And and how are we able to to you know compile these estimates in terms of where we're going and what we're going to need? Well, joining us to talk more about it is the author of this report. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Benjamin Tal, managing director, chief deputy economist with CIBC World Markets. Benjamin, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So you you come to a different number than the uh, Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation does. Uh, talk a bit about how you arrived at this five million figure. Yes, I think that uh, also CMSC probably will agree with uh, with that number because what CMSC did was two or three years ago and they had the best year. Uh, since then, uh, we got many more people into the country, much more than expected, especially when it comes to non-permanent residents and especially foreign students. So the best number is much higher than what they assumed two years ago. And uh, therefore, if you just adjust that, we are short about one more, 1.5 million compared to the original estimate. Yeah. At the end of the day, 3.545, it's really not important because we will not reach the target, regardless no. what the number is. <laughs> so we have to know that. We have to maximize what we can do, given the limitations that we have. We have to rethink housing in a very significant way because we have a significant housing uh, crisis here, housing affordability crisis. Well, I guess so we have yeah. to treat it as a crisis. Right. Yeah, I mean, the number is relevant in the sense because it reflects demand and uh, the level of demand will affect affordability. So if the demand is is a lot greater than we're assuming, uh, that's going to have some real consequences then. Absolutely. And the question is, uh, to what extent we can uh, change demand? So what the government did just recently, the cap on uh, the number of foreign students is the is a step in the right direction. Not enough. We need more than that, but clearly a step in the right direction. We have um, many uh, what I call Mickey Mouse colleges that really are not colleges, Mm -hmm. that accept many foreign students. And those foreign students are not really students. They come here to buy... um, Canadian citizenship on a chip. I think that the government is starting to realize that. So the 
it's a step in the right direction. We need to get foreign students into the country, absolutely, but we need to get real students into the country, and we have to make sure that they can, we can house them. Otherwise, uh, it beats the purpose. So in terms of how much this announcement ma- matters, I mean, you know, given what was announced about limiting foreign students, would you go back and revise your number at all? Is it, is it even going to, to measure in terms of overall demand in the next six years? No, this is already taking into account those, yeah, those okay. measures. So well, therefore, I think uh, we need uh, more than that. We need more than that. I don't think that the government will touch um, the number of new immigrants. It will remain 500,000. But I think that we, we will see more steps uh, towards non-permanent residents. So if this is the path we're on, I mean, what, what does this all mean for housing prices five years down the road? Unfortunately, it means that if we don't, deal with supply in a very significant way and work to reduce demand, their price, the prices will continue to go up. Uh, and if Toronto and, and Vancouver are, are unaffordable now, just wait. And that worries me a lot because we have a generation of Canadians that cannot even dream about owning a house. Uh, I think that um, we are risking a situation in which we are going to have um, pockets of uh, social unrest. We're going to have anti-immigrant sentiment. Mm-hmm. We're going to have rental strike. It's written on the wall. It's printed on the wall. We see the trajectory. We need to treat this crisis uh, as an emergency crisis, and we have to do whatever we can to increase um, supply and make sure that the, the demand is reasonable. Well, we, we seem to be talking a lot about this issue these days, but as, as you point out, there there doesn't seem to be any kind of target, strategy. Like, we, we don't seem to be treating it like the, the crisis it is. Well, I think that governments at all, at all levels are starting to move in the right direction. For many years, we used the demand tools to deal with supply issues. For the first time, governments at all levels admitting that supply is the issue and we need to build much more. But unfortunately, even if you do the right things, it takes three, four, five, six years to get some results. Meanwhile, at this level of demand, we simply cannot afford doing that. So we need to cut demand in a very significant way. So we have to take another look at the number of students, non-permanent residents, and make sure that population growth does not grow more than 1.5%. We are now at 3%, which is much higher than any other OECD country. It's simply unsustainable. So we can still grow. We can still, you know, bring in immigrants, bring in international students. We don't have to cut that off entirely, but we need maybe a much more manageable number. Is that what you're you're arguing? That's exactly what I'm saying. If we cannot house them, we cannot accept them because it's not fair to us and it's not fair to them. I think that uh, when you have a situation in which foreign students cannot find housing and living in tents, when foreign students uh, visit um, the food bank, something is wrong with that picture. I don't get it. As for the supply, as you said, whether it's 3.5 million or 5 million over the next six years, we're not going to reach that number. But what do you think is a realistic number that if governments were determined enough that, that we actually could get to? Well, at this point, we are building roughly 250,000 units a year. I think we can go easily to 350 and 400 if we do the right things and we build differently, faster. And we also have to look at innovation. Namely, we have to build differently. I'm talking about factory-made housing. I'm talking about 3D printing and many other technologies that are there existed, existing. Um, in uh, places like the U.S., uh, Germany, and uh, other European countries. 
you know, you mentioned, you know, the government response, uh, you know, immigration, international students, that's federal jurisdiction. A lot of these, these issues around building housing supply, it's at the municipal level. Provinces are kind of caught in, in the middle a little bit on some of this. Is, is that part of the problem in Canada is that we just have too many competing and overlapping jurisdictions? Absolutely. I think that there is a lot of red tape in the system. It takes a long time, especially at the municipal level. It takes a long time to get um, uh, the system going, to get the permits. We all know the story. You talk to developers, they tell, them, they tell you that they have to wait 10, 12 years before things move. We have to speed it up because, again, we, are, we have to enter a crisis mode and we have to change the way we do business because it's not business as usual. No, it certainly isn't. Uh, much more CIBC Capital Markets, uh, CIBCCM.com. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us here today. A pleasure. Thank you. All the best. Uh, Benjamin Tal is uh, Managing Director, Deputy Chief Economist with CIBC World Markets, uh, the author of this report released last week, uh, warning that we got a big problem here. Uh, it's called the housing crisis is a planning crisis and talking about how we got to this point. Um, but taking that, that 3.5 million number from CMHC, he says that that's changed. So much has changed since the CMHC first put up that number. It's more like five million. So you think of all the houses that are being built right now, right across the country, every day, every month, every year. And if we stay at that pace, when we get to 2030, we'll be five million short of what we actually need. Five million. That's a massive number. Like that's, that's bigger than, than all of Toronto. In this hour, though, I want to talk about a piece of legislation that's working its way through Parliament that maybe you've never heard of. It's Bill S-210. And, and the S is interesting. So when it comes to legislation, there's usually C and a number or S and a number. C being the House of Commons, S being the Senate. This is a bill that originated in the Senate, passed the Senate, and could end up passing in the House of Commons even though this doesn't have government support. Now, this is ostensibly about protecting kids. And after all, who would be against protecting kids? In this case, from explicit online content. And again, that seems even more obvious. Kids should not be accessing sexually explicit material online. It's probably far too easy for them to do so. And so this legislation aims to address that by requiring age verification for websites. Now, that gets a little bit tricky because what does online verification entail, age verification? And what are we defining here as explicit content? So this has some broader ramifications uh, for Internet freedom. Is there a way to balance the two? Does, does this bill get it right? It's a really interesting uh, write-up on all of this at uh, ablog.ca, uh, L-A-W-G. Looking at some of the problems around this, the, the actual issues that, that maybe we do need to address, but perhaps where this legislation misses the mark. Joining us uh, to talk more about uh, these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Emily Laidlaw, professor of law at the University of Calgary, Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity Law. Professor Laidlaw, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so when you're asked, when you're talking about this and, and you know, your summary of what Bill S... Uh, 210 is. How, how do you explain it? Yeah, so it is essentially an online age verification law for access to child pornography sites, which, I mean, on its face, it sounds like a good idea. Um, 
But the problem is that it's incredibly difficult to write these types of laws that don't have knock-on effects. And I think we should start by saying, you know, for adults to access pornography is legal. So Mm -hmm. the particular mischief we're dealing with here is that it's really easy for kids to access the material online. And so this law is stated that um, it's a criminal offense for uh, any online service to make available pornography unless they have in place uh, age verification technology. And there are certain criteria around what this age verification technology should be um, set out in the law, but also later in regulations. Which is simple enough in the real world, uh, you know, where, where explicit material is available, uh, you know, kids entering or, or attempting to purchase uh, that, they, they need to show ID, and that's, that's simple enough. But how does this apply in an online context? Well, and I think that's where it's so much more difficult to do in an online context. Um, to give you kind of the quick summary of it, uh, we first have to figure out where exactly, you know, who's this going to apply to? Is this just going to be to... Uh, commercial pornography sites, if you're thinking of Pornhub, for example, or is it to any social media where uh, pornography might, you know, be posted, even if it's against the terms and conditions. So that happens on YouTube all the time. There's quite a bit of pornography on Twitter um, and and just, you know, generally on any sort of website. So, so there's a broad issue of what do you mean by any provider that makes it available? But there's also a major technology issue here um, because to be able to verify who you are online, you end up having some provider that might collect information about you. Is it requiring you to show IDs to, to access pornography? Yeah. Um, who, you know, are proper security safeguards being used to to manage that and the security risks? We saw a major breach of Ashley Madison back in the day um, where they weren't using proper security safeguards and some, you know, really intimate information and the stigmatization that goes along with it all gets exposed to the world and, and people are continuing to be ransomed today for, for using that website. So there's technical questions there and it's about how to narrowly do this in a way that protects children. And, and I will say that, I, you know, I fall on the side that I actually strongly believe we need to be pursuing, um, uh, you know, how to do privacy-preserving age verification technology properly to protect children. Um, and it's not just the technical aspects, but organizationally how it's set out, you know. Does the company use data minimization techniques? Um, is it thinking through maybe, you know, ways that they might get rid of, you know, information when they no longer need it? Is there ways that they're guessing the ages of children and are there good methods for that or not? Yeah. Well, is that to say maybe the technology is not quite where it needs to be in terms of online verification or that we do have it and we just are trying to figure out how to manage it? Well, yeah, and it's a little bit of both, right? So the technology is very much in the early stages. Um, if you talk to some of, of, you know, the techies, they'll say, okay, no, we figured out a privacy-preserving way, but it's still dependent on initially collecting that particular data, and we haven't figured out organizationally how to ensure it's protected. I'd say that one of the best methods that's being explored is the idea of a token, right? You know, that you get this token that you can use elsewhere. But you can imagine that's really difficult because how do you ensure that token is tied to you? Um, and again, of course, there's a million, you know, any parent will say, God, there's a million ways to get around this. Kids are just going to, you know, grab their parents' ID. They might trade tokens with someone. They'll use a VPN to get around it. Um, but I don't think that the fact this is imperfect should dissuade us from trying to put in place 
solutions to a, a pretty real problem about online safety uh, for kids. But yeah, the tech isn't, it's not quite there yet. Okay, so th- this law then would, would identify websites that, that, would, that would potentially host explicit content, require them to have these verification policies and procedures in place. And I guess if they didn't, there are provisions here that the government could block those websites? Well, yeah, and that so the problem with the law right now is is as it's drafted. So it it could be fixed. Uh, in my view, it doesn't even belong as a standalone bill. This really should be in the broader online safety legislation. I mean, I think you know Twitter and the TikToks of the world have uh, uh, broader online safety obligations than just this. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that this is drafted, it would be any company that makes this content available. So it's far too broad. And then if they fail to comply with it, then an order can be made for for website blocking. And and that isn't necessarily bad if it's done in in a kind of proportionate last resort way. Um, And it has been ordered by courts before. Uh, But the problem with this is that it it contemplates the idea that you know, and I think it's unconstitutional. The way it's set out is, hey, you know what? There can be a court order for blocking of a website, even if it's not just sexually explicit material, even if it's blocking access for adults to to this material, which they're legally entitled to to access. So it contemplates the idea of something that is a totally disproportionate mm-hmm. um, interference with. And again, the right to freedom of expression. I mean, it needs to be a proportionate, narrow, last resort effort. I mean, Twitter's a good example. I mean, there, there's there's a lot of stuff on Twitter, as you say, that maybe needs to, to be cleaned up or addressed through through some broader legislation. But uh, it's easy enough to find explicit content on Twitter. So, you know, here we have potentially where, where the government could, could block Twitter in this country altogether if they don't have age verification. And even if they do, then... How do we trust them? What are they doing with that information? Well, yeah, and so that's the problem, right? And I and I can understand that for some of the providers, they'll say, actually, website blocking is, is, is useful because we might be a major commercial pornography provider and we're complying with the laws and we have age verification in place, um, but then no one wants to use our site, so they're just jumping to the rogue mm-hmm. ones that are based in other countries. Website blocking is useful for that, right? Again, mm-hmm. narrow circumstances. Um, but, you know, how do you deal with the Twitters of the world if you say, okay, 20% of the content is is pornography? They're not a commercial pornography provider the way we've imagined, but it's right. certainly really easy for them to, to you know, um, I guess, you know, it's really easy for, for that content to be found. But the way this is contemplated, yeah, it might block it might block access to Twitter, it might block access to TikTok or any other provider. So it's really about finessing the the language in this act because it matters. Getting the language right does matter. It's not something that we can leave till later because it's capable of a very broad interpretation. For those websites that kind of are commercial uh, providers of explicit content, I guess, you know, Pornhub and, and OnlyFans are two obvious ones and you mentioned them in your piece. Like, is is there evidence here that there's there's a void that that they aren't doing enough? Where how do the the big, well known, commercially successful websites how do they handle this issue right now? Well, I think it is a problem. There's no set standard, and I would say that there was a huge uproar when, and it was again on the side of um, 
actually people being exploited. So it wasn't the users accessing the site as much. But on Pornhub, where started realizing that all kinds of individuals that had been sexually abused and exploited, um, their content about them was being posted uh, on Pornhub. And so certain verification methods were put in place to try to address some of those issues. But it really depends on the platform. So if you go into platform, onto Pornhub, you essentially just self-verify and you say, hey, I'm 18, and the second you click on that, it takes you to all kinds of sexually explicit material immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of the other providers are, are, like OnlyFans are a lot stricter, requiring users to to verify their identity. So it's all over the map. So there's a reason to standardize this, right? right? And there's a reason not to just leave it to users or their parents to just, you know, put in place parental controls, although that's important. I mean, this is a society-wide issue, and once you hit that level, then there needs to be certain interventions. And I guess this is also kind of a byproduct of a minority parliament because the government doesn't actually support Bill S-210. They say they're going to try to address some of these issues in their online harms legislation, which we don't know what, what that's going to look like yet. Uh, and yet it appears as though this, this bill could actually pass, though. So where, where would that leave us? Well, I think it would be incredibly harmful for the bill to pass as is. Um, because of all the flaws in the way that it's drafted. And I entirely agree with, with majority government that, um, uh, well, I guess they're not in the majority, but um, but the federal government, that they do not support this particular bill. This, this belongs in online safety legislation as part of that broader package. This is the approach that the UK took. It's the approach that the EU has taken. Um, because you can say, do you have age verification? Do you have other policies in place as a company to protect children? Like this is really just about child protection measures in general. And so hiving off this one particular question from all the other online safety issues actually doesn't work in practice, Um, in particular because the online safety legislation, I mean, hopefully it's introduced soon, but it's supposed to contemplate the idea that you have some commissioner, some body that audits these companies that requires them to be transparent about how they are taking steps to to protect their users and that doesn't really work if online verification is floating out there as some other piece of legislation and perhaps kind of with oversight from some other random regulator we'll see how this all plays out we'll leave it there for now professor Layla, i appreciate your insights on all this thanks so much for joining us here today Thank you. All the best. Uh, Emily Laidlaw, professor of law at the University of Calgary, has mentioned Canada Research Chair in uh, cybersecurity law. So get an overview of some of the problems with Bill S210. Uh, S and then I guess we'll see what the government decides to do through their own online harms legislation. And this could kind of run into each other and maybe even make more of a mess. Uh, but do we need more in the way of online age verification? A lot of websites, and I see it sometimes, y'all go to the website for like a brewery, and the first thing you see is, are you 18? And you click yes, and then that's it. Okay, sounds good. Not that there's anything on the website that's problematic, but obviously on some websites there is. So how do we do that? I don't know if this, this bill is the right way to do that. And the whole idea that anything that potentially could host explicit content, and Twitter's a good example, so the government of Canada is going to force Twitter to have this online age verification. And that's not just clicking on yes. That's some way of verifying your face, your identification. And if they don't do that, that the government could then just block Twitter 
or acts, I guess it is now, for everybody in this country? Hey, welcome back. 403-974-8255 is the number. We'll get back to some more of your phone calls in a bit here. We'll also check in with Sarah Crosby. Find out what's coming up this afternoon on Connect with Sarah Crosby here on QR Calgary. Uh, pretty big breakthrough when it comes to understanding long-term allergies. Could you just shut off your allergy, your allergic reaction, whatever it is in your body that's convinced that dust or pollen or peanuts or whatever it is, is somehow a threat. You know, there's still a, a mystery as to what causes that, why your, your body reacts to, to these allergens in a certain way and initiates that immune response that is the, the allergy. Well, this new research has identified a very important cell, what they say is a smoking gun when it comes to why there are lifelong allergies. It, it's a cell, a type 2 memory B cell that essentially remembers. Like if you're allergic to, to peanuts, you can go years and years without any peanut exposure, but your body will remember it and, and still have the same reaction. And it appears as though we understand where that comes from, which then raises the very exciting uh, potential of shutting that off. What if you could deactivate that cell or just eliminate it altogether? So basically your body would forget the allergy. Well, that would be pretty huge. So this is a big step in that direction. Uh, joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, one of the Canadian researchers involved in this discovery, Josh Koenig, assistant professor in the Department of Clinical Allergy and Immunology at the Department of Medicine, McMaster University. Dr. Koenig, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me on. I mean, this is the culmination of research, as I understand, that's, that's been ongoing for many years. You know, what, what is it you're looking for here when it comes to, to solving a mystery like this? Yeah, so, uh, you know, us at the Schroeder Allergy and Immunology Research Institute uh, at McMaster have been thinking about the issue of allergic memory for about 15 years now. Pretty much what we're trying to figure out is why is it that for some people, allergies will stay, you know, persistent for a whole lifetime? For example, most people with peanut allergy will be allergic forever. And it's not very intuitive, like you mentioned. We are not exposed to these allergens. When mm -hmm. somebody's allergic, they're trying to avoid it. So how does the immune system remember this, right? And so we have these things called memory cells, which is something that we knew uh, kind of before as we were starting these studies. And, and, and we started to uh, try and discern, okay, well, is there a certain kind of memory cell maybe that holds the memory of this allergy? And, you know, after all these years and all this work, uh, it turns out there is. Well, and how do you go looking for that? I mean, you're not sitting there, they're looking at individual cells, but do you kind of have a sense of what you're looking for? And then how do you go about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. The way that we did this, uh, our colleagues uh, in Denmark, who are our uh, leads on the study with us, at a company called ALK Abelo, they used this technology where they took individual cells, B cells, which are the ones that make antibodies that make us allergic, and they did this unique uh, sequencing tool that allowed us to look at each of those cells, what genes do those cells make? And as you said, you, you know, I can't go through this, you know, one by one and try and look through everything. So we use these really powerful computers to basically group the different cells into bins that are similar. And kind of what popped out from that uh, for us was a bin of these B cells that, that looked allergic based on what we know about allergy 
Uh, and, and, you know, this group of cells hadn't been described before. So what is the role then of this cell? Because the cell itself is not causing the allergy. So where does it fit into this? Yeah, so, I mean, causing the allergy is a bit of a, a, a tricky, uh, you know, wording for this because what really causes an allergic reaction is the antibodies, mm-hmm. these antibodies called IgE antibodies. They will bind up to our uh, to peanut and cause these, you know, immediate reactions if somebody eats a peanut, let's say, or, you know, a pollen if they're allergic to uh, seasonal allergens. Um, but what this cell does is it kind of lays dormant and waits and when we see the allergen again, let's say it becomes the pollen season, these cells wake up and then they start making a bunch of those allergic antibodies. So the way that we see this is that they're really keeping people allergic by kind of waiting, keeping that memory, and then reminding the body to be allergic when the allergens come along. Does the cell play a role then in the, the severity of the allergy? What seems to be the connection to that? Well, so that's a really good question. I think, unfortunately, we don't have a great understanding of what causes a severe allergy. I mean, people will have very different reactions, uh, you know, different times they're allergic. You know, one time it might be a tummy ache, and then the next time it might be uh, anaphylaxis and almost dying. We don't really understand what exactly causes severity. We haven't done that work, but it would be interesting to figure out, well, if you have more of these cells, are you more severe? I think that's something that we should do in the future. Right. So I know the next step here is is to basically identify this uh, this cell in individuals who have allergies. And I guess specifically you've been looking at, at children with peanut allergies. Yeah. And that's something that uh, that we and, and another paper in the same issue from a Maria LaFay's group in, in New York, we basically did this. We found the B cells that are responding to the peanut. And we found that really in allergic people, most of those B cells have this new are, are this type of B cell that we found, which we call MBC2, but it's it's this type of B cell. But if you look at the cells that are responding to peanut non-allergic people, they don't really have any of these of these new cells that we found. Yeah. So the question now becomes: I mean, if you can somehow inactivate this cell, what are the implications of that? So what what can we potentially where can we potentially take these findings? Yeah, I, you know, this is the really exciting part of this. We now have. A, you know, the target, this thing that we're going after. We know that these cells are involved in making these allergic antibodies. So now we uh, have a, a more precise mechanism to say, well, we want to go after these cells in particular and not touch any of the other ones so that we don't, you know, for example, uh, cause problems with our vaccine responses, which are right. also in these cells, right? So, um, you know, the way that we and, and, and also uh, other pharmaceutical companies that, that we've heard from Basically, we have these different therapies that will allow us to kind of do one of two things. We can try to kill these cells and get rid of them, or we can try and convince them to uh, not be so allergic and maybe do something that's more protective. And these pharmaceutical companies are now taking drugs that look like it could target this cell, and they're putting them into trials. Right, so it's almost like you're convincing the body, you're convincing these cells to forget, essentially. Yeah, Exactly. But they're really, really stubborn. That's the one thing. These cells, they, they want to make these allergic antibodies and trying to convince them not to do that. Uh, it, it's going to be tricky, but we're hoping that we can do it. Well, big discovery. I look forward to seeing where this all goes from here. Josh, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. It's been a huge pleasure. Thanks so much. Okay, there you go. That's, that's pretty fascinating. Josh Koenig at McMaster University, assistant professor in the Division of Clinical Allergy and Immunology, uh, one of the researchers involved in this discovery.
So the next step is, okay, what can you do with this cell? Can you deactivate it? Can you destroy it, basically? Because uh, if that's where the sort of imprint of the allergy is, the memory of the allergy is, if you get rid of it, then you sort of forget that there was that allergy because there shouldn't be. Right? Your body's reacting in a way to something that, that's not a threat. An interesting report out today from the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy, looking at the whole issue of DEI training and instruction. Now, this stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion, which on the surface, those all sound good. Uh, but this means something much more in practice. And you're seeing a lot of this, corporations expected to, to do DEI training, uh, and government institutions, post-secondary institutions, etc., now, what does the evidence tell us, though, about the effectiveness of this? And what is all of this trying to accomplish? Well, this new report sort of explores that very question and finds there's not a lot of evidence, really none, that suggests this is actually effective. So why are we expanding this and, and going further down this path? Well, joining us to talk more about it is the author of this report, Dr. David Haskell, is a researcher and professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, a senior research fellow at the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy. AristotleFoundation.org is the website. Uh, David, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. It's certainly my pleasure. Let's talk about what we mean when we talk about DEI, because I think these words on their own, who wouldn't be for diversity, who wouldn't be for uh, equity and inclusion, et cetera. But what do we actually mean in practice here? Well, in practice, what we see with DEI instruction, it's a, a repackaging of social justice ideas. And in this case, really pretty far left social justice ideas put into a, an educational curriculum. And what we will see in that curriculum is really two types. You're going to have anti-racist education, which sometimes is the dominant form of DEI instruction. And then you also have uh, part of this curriculum that focuses on celebration of LGBT. But, but its main focus or its main theme is this notion of oppression, that there are those who are categorically the oppressors in, in society, and then there are those who are the oppressed. Okay, so as you say, this isn't new. Uh, maybe it's been repackaged in a newer way, but wh why do we seem to be hearing so much more about this these days? Well, we, we hear on two fronts. We hear about it more positively in the media and through our government or through our education systems because it's pervasive. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere now. Uh, I'm in the province of Ontario, and, and there are bills coming through our provincial government that actually would lead that actually would have all DEI instruction included right in our educational curriculum from K through grade 12 into university. And of course, it's already happening in university. Our governments are promoting it ubiquitously. We just saw recently that the Canadian military is now making it mandatory for people to believe DEI concepts, in particular DEI concepts surrounding implicit bias or, or you can face disciplinary action. So that's one reason that we're seeing it so much. We're also seeing it a great deal because people are recognizing the direct line between DEI instruction and the rise in really overt anti-Semitism and other forms of discrimination. Mm -hmm. Which gets to the question of, I mean, whether all of this is working, and I suppose that depends on, on what the actual objective of all of this is, maybe stated or, or implicit objectives, but how do you go about assessing that question of, of the impact here? Well, 
as a social scientist, we have a pretty good formula for assessing the impact. What you do is, is you measure to see whether the claims of the people saying this stuff works really do. And, and when you do that, when you actually apply empirical tools to these claims, you find that they don't have the evidence to support them. And in particular, the main claim of DEI proponents is that this stuff works. And by that, they mean that it will change attitude. It's going to make people less prejudiced. It's going to make people more harmonious. People from different groups will work more together. Well, as I did in my research, essentially what I did was I pulled together what everybody has been ignoring. And there have been a series of meta-analyses, which, which a meta-analysis takes numerous studies, and in this case, approaching 2,000 studies, and then quantitative, quantitatively examines them and says, can we justify the claims? And what we see conclusively is there is no evidence that DEI training changes behavior. Now, in addition to that, there are other studies that show unequivocally that DEI training can make people more bigoted. And, and as I say, I'm just taking the, the research that's already been done and I'm putting it all in one spot. And I'm saying, why have we been ignoring this? Well, it's an important question, especially since, as you say, this has grown so exponentially. I guess you know, it would be one thing if we could look at the research and say, wow, this, this is terrific. This is having great outcomes. Let's expand this. But if the evidence isn't there, what's, what's been the basis for that? Well, you know, that should be the question on every right-thinking person's mind. Why are we still doing this in light of no evidence that it does anything good and clear evidence that it does harm? And, uh, I mean, we can speculate. There's a, a financial imperative. The people who are promoting this stuff, it's a, it's a multi-billion-dollar industry now. They have, they have every reason for it to want to continue. Uh, businesses who are promoting this, of course they want it to continue because it diverts from any kind of collusion or corruption they might be engaged in. You see, they can virtue signal. They can say, look, we're, we're doing all this DEI stuff. Mm-hmm. At the level of government, it allows them to appeal to special interests and garner votes that way. In the educational system, I think that that's where you find a lot of the true believers. Uh, and, and they're coming at this from, uh, uh, I would say, not a good place. They want to remake society, and they found a tool to do it. And uh, they don't care that it lacks any kind of empirical validity. All they care is that it's going to get them what they want. Well, and it's one of these things where, you know, it's, it's hard to take a backward step just because of the, you know, the whole connotation uh, around these words and this concept. And so things keep moving in a certain direction. How do we, how do we go about a rethink here, do you, th- do you think? Well, there's got to be political will to do it. Uh, there, there, there can definitely be a movement at the grassroots level where parents can say, you're not going to teach my kids this stuff because it has no empirical foundation. But at some point, the governments have to admit that, that they, too, are promoting something that is about as valid as bloodletting. Um, and, and, and until that happens, I think we just have to embarrass these people. We have to say, you're, you're promoting something that is the equivalent of bloodletting. And, and I'm using that example because even bloodletting, you know, it was fashionable for about a thousand years. And then finally, somebody measured it and said, oh, my goodness you know what, now that we've actually measured the effect, we see that it doesn't do anything good, and, and it can do harm. 
Uh, and so that's what it starts to fall out of favor. And there's a certain metaphor there. At some point, when you realize that what they're touting as beneficial isn't, you got to throw the leeches out. So DEI in this context, then, as you say, I mean, it does refer to something specific, a specific approach, a specific ideology, which I guess isn't to say that any sort of promotion of tolerance or inclusion would fall under that. I mean, is there still a way that we can do that to, to, to sort of separate the two or just even to, to overhaul all of this so that maybe that's where the focus could be? Well, I think that you've hit the nail on the head. Certainly, we want to promote the idea that we should all get along and that immutable characteristics just don't matter a whit. I mean, that that really is what we were aiming for coming out of the 1960s. And actually, by about the 1980s, we achieved it. But now we're promoting a false idea that there's discrimination where there isn't, and then we're creating actual dis discrimination where there wasn't. And so we need to maybe step back and say, let's let's go with just the basics here and treat everybody equally. Much more at AristotleFoundation.org. Uh, David, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Yeah, it's my pleasure. You go. That's uh, Dr. David Haskell, researcher and professor, Wilfrid Laurier University, senior research fellow of the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy, which is where you can find his uh, latest report looking at DEI training and what the research tells us about its effectiveness, aristotlefoundation.org. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. We're expecting a federal budget sometime probably either next month or the month after, either in March or April. Uh, the finance minister today uh, offered some comments on what the uh, priorities are going to be. Christia Freeland talked about trying to create the economic conditions through their next budget that will allow for interest rates to come down. Quote, we are definitely conscious as our priority when it comes to economic policy of acting in such a way that creates conditions that will make it possible for interest rates to come down. Well, that's good. Fiscal policy that doesn't make the Bank of Canada's job harder. Part of that, that inflationary fiscal policy, of course, has been the government's willingness to spend, to borrow, to run deficits, to run up debt. Now, an economic strategy that focuses on economic growth, uh, productivity, that, that would be welcome. But there's also a need, I, I think, to, to rein in that, that, that spending that has been contributing to some of those inflationary pressures. Uh, but how realistic is that? You know, even well before the pandemic, we saw, you know, the government's promised modest deficits become anything but. And the idea that we quickly would get back to a balanced budget, well, that was out the window. Then, of course, uh, came the pandemic, pandemic and the pretty massive deficits. Now, while those numbers have come down uh, over the last couple of years, we're still dealing with some large deficits. And it feels like a balanced budget is like a dream, almost like it's, it's a long way off. But does it have to be? Well, an interesting new analysis from the Fraser Institute finds that even with some modest spending restraint, we could get back to a, a balanced budget relatively quickly. Uh, the report's called a case for spending restraint, how the federal government can balance the budget. And no, it doesn't have to mean slashing and burning. Read more at FraserInstitute.org. Joining us is Jake Fuss, uh, Director of Fiscal Studies at the Fraser Institute, co-author of this report. Jake, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. 
So we're, we're certainly not as, as bad off as we were, you know, in this pandemic years with massive budget deficits, but it still seems like we're, we're running much bigger deficits than we were pre-pandemic. What's your sense of, of where we're at here heading into this new budget? Yeah, exactly like you just outlined. I think that's the main concern right now. We're, we're running more significant deficits today than we were running actually before the pandemic. Um, and even though we were running, you know, substantial deficits during COVID as well, a lot of the spending and actually the vast majority of the spending that was occurring during those years wasn't even related to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so this has really just been a trend that's conti- really continued over time. Um, and now ultimately what we see um, is that we have this string of budget deficits, uh, you know, where it's going to be nine or 10 in a row pretty soon here. Um, we've also had almost a trillion dollar increase in debt over the last nine years as well. Um, so ultimately, we do need to, to kind of have a new sense of direction in federal fiscal policy moving forward. Right. And I think at the same time as the government talks about eventually getting uh, to, to a balanced budget, they, they seem to imply that you know, doing so in the shorter term could be reckless or would have to mean deep, deep cuts. Um, But this report suggests that it doesn't have to be that way. That's right. I mean, really, um, if if they just pull back on the spending increases that they're doing currently, um, you know, right now they're they're increasing spending, you know, roughly by about three percent over the the long term here. Um, if they just pulled that back and were you know not spending as much, um, they could actually have a balanced budget within two years. By 2026, they would just need to limit their growth in annual spending to about 0.3 percent for two years. Um, so this is. Um, you know, not actually a requirement for them to reduce spending um, from the current levels that they're going to have in 2024, but it is essentially a freeze on spending for two years with a really nominal increase, a really minor amount in, it, in an increase. Um, but that would actually allow them to get back to a balanced budget within really a realistic time frame of two years. Um, they just pull back on the spending that they're, they've, they have planned for the next two years. As it stands now, how far off is a balanced budget if the government continues with the status quo? Yeah, so when we look at at the report, um, in 2026, the government is expected to have about a $27 billion deficit. Um, And next year, um, in 2025, they're also expected to have roughly the same deficit as what they're currently expected to run at about $38 billion. Um, so there are significant changes that the government does have to make in order to make a balanced budget, but it really just requires them not to go through with the significant increases in planned spending that they have for the next two years. Um, like I said, it doesn't necessarily require them to actually reduce spending from current levels. It just requires them to pull back on some of those projected spending in the future um, that they have these su- substantial projections for um, in 2025 and beyond. It is interesting because at times it seems that we, we or maybe the, the you know, conversation in Ottawa where uh, slowing the rate of spending increases or, or even freezing spending, uh, that that's considered a, a cut. Like a cut in spending is a cut in spending. Uh, s- slowing the increase in, in spending growth, that, that's, that's not a cut, is it? No, that's exactly the right point, too. That's not actually a, a cut in nominal terms when we're looking at, um, you know, program spending changes. If you're just slowing down the growth rate in spending year over year, you're still increasing spending um, from one year to the next. It's just maybe not as high as, as you know, you were projecting maybe a 3% increase, um, and then instead you just increase spending by 1%. That's not a cut. Um, it's just 
simply a slowdown in the growth rate of spending, um, which is a very different conversation than actually reducing uh, your spending year over year. Yeah. So is, are we talking kind of across the board or are there certain areas or programs we could focus on? I mean, you talk about some of the areas where we are expected to see some big increases in, in, in the years ahead. So where, where do we need to focus? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's a good question. I mean, one of the things that we looked at in the study was actually some of the, the reforms that were made during the 1990s on the Chrétien government. And they really had, um, you know, a criteria for examining programs and services on a case-by-case basis. Um, so things that they, you know, evaluated uh, programs are was, does it serve the public interest? Um, is there a necessity of government involvement? Um, is there an appropriate federal role, or is this more of a public, uh, a provincial role, for instance? Um, is there a scope for increasing efficiency in these programs, and is it an affordable program for us to, to deliver? Um, and one of the things that you know we think that should should really be looked at now, especially at the federal level right now, um, is corporate welfare. Um, you know, we looked at in 2022, for instance, um, the federal government gave out about just over 11 billion dollars in business subsidies and capital transfers to businesses. So that could be one of the first areas that the government looks at, for instance, to find potential savings um, and really reducing that amount that they're giving or even finding you know, a way to get rid of corporate welfare over the long term too. Um, so that might be an area that they can start with their evaluation. What's the argument for, for taking this approach, though? And the, the government seems to have convinced itself or to try to convince us that, uh, you know, that deficits don't really matter, or that this is kind of consequence-free borrowing. I think as interest rates have gone up, that's kind of put some of that to lie. But what's the argument for being at least a little more aggressive in trying to get that, that, that deficit eliminated? Yeah, it's a great question. So ultimately, I think there's a few things here. Um, the first thing is we know that there's a lot of empirical research showing that when you're financing all your spending through debt, um, that can actually harm economic growth by reducing capital accumulation, labor productivity, and a whole host of other factors. Um, the second thing is also that accumulating debt today actually increases the tax burden on future generations of Canadians as they're responsible for either paying off the debt that we accumulate or also covering the resulting interest payments that we have to pay um, and all else equal. Um, when you have um, accumulating debt over time, your debt interest costs are also going to rise, especially in an environment like today where we've had you know, elevated interest rates. Um, that also comes back to bite you as well. Um, so ultimately, it is about the federal government planning. You know, they have a plan to continue running deficits for the foreseeable future. Um, we need to, to continue to start to curtail that uh, trend. Um, otherwise, we could get into a pretty sticky situation in the near future um, in terms of debt interest costs, um, consuming more and more revenue, um, and ultimately resulting in likely future tax increases for Canadians, too. We'll see what the government comes down with either next month or the month after. Much more in the meantime at uh, FraserInstitute.org. Jake, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me on. All the best. Uh, Jake Fuss is Director of Fiscal Studies at the Fraser Institute, co-author of this report, The Case for Spending Restraint, How the Federal Government Can Balance the Budget. That doesn't sound like a, a radical approach. You just slow down spending. Uh, rein that in so you still have spending increases, just much more modest spending increases. And that could get us back to a balanced budget a lot sooner. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.